One man's journey into sobriety has prompted him to help bring others out of addiction. We're going to find out how one man is overcoming addiction day by day and why he decided to create the region's first sober bar. Stay with us. This is Inquire. For the Mr. Inquire, I'm Don Wilkins, and with me is Billy Pfeiffer, better known as Pastor Billy P. To those who know him, and and I just met uh, Billy about a week or so ago, and um, found it very very interesting um, that someone had opened up um, a sober bar. I'd never heard of a sober bar. Um, now, Billy, was that an intentional kind of intentional irony that you opened up a sober bar inside what it what used to be an actual liquor bar? Well, kind of. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, since I have an honest program and recovery is about being honest, um, originally I opened that up to be a Trials to Triumph motorcycle ministry clubhouse. But people get scared because there's a stigma on, on motorcycle groups, just like there's a stigma on addiction. And I think that we were scaring more people away than we were drawing them in. So I separated the entities, and I said, you know what, this is gonna, we're going to turn this into a sober bar. The first, the first sober bar in the state of Kentucky right here in Owensboro. I guess start back um, by your own journey into sobriety. We'll go there, and then we'll eventually catch back up to your sober bar, because that's one of the main reasons why we're doing this. But, but you have a, your own story, and I've done other podcasts in regards to addiction, and, and because we have a huge meth problem here in Western Kentucky, and um, and so it's it's a it's a, it's an issue, you know, uh, drugs in general, but 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 meth in particular here in Western Kentucky. And so I'm always wanting to bring this issue to light. And then when I find folks like yourself who are out there, kind of helping in the fight against uh, drugs and, and addiction, and um, so I always want to try to. Uh, you know, help out in that in that way if if at all possible. So, where are you from, and and how, and and what was your journey into sobriety? Well, as the listeners are gonna hear already, they know that I'm not from Kentucky, because <laughs> I have an accent. Um, I am a Michigan. Um, I'm a Yankee. Um, I was born in Flint, Michigan, and. Um, I come from an amazing family. People think that addicts and alcoholics, that we come from uh, broken families or families of poverty, um, and that, that, that's wrong. I mean, the disease of alcoholism, the disease of addiction, it doesn't care where you come from. Um, I come from an amazing family. My mom and dad, they adopted four kids, all from different families. Um, I was raised in Grand Blanc, Michigan, and that's like an upscale, you know, high-class um, community. Um, I went to a private school, kindergarten through eighth grade. Uh, they liked me so much there, they let me do first grade twice. Um, it was at that point I was having religion um, drilled into me, kind of pushed pushed on me, forced on me. Um, while I was going through that school, for lack of better words, you know, I missed the whole God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness because it was preached to me all fire hell and brimstone and there wasn't any hope for somebody like me so if i got high because of feelings because i did you know i used drugs and alcohol for feelings either one i didn't like the way i felt two i wanted to feel different 
And then three, the last eight out of the 20 years that I was out there, I didn't want to feel anything at all. So if you're a young kid and you really believe what these people are telling you, that, you know, going to hell, that's not a good feeling. So from the, from the private school, I went to a public school, Grand Blanc High School. During this time, um, I was doing what a lot of kids were doing, you know, smoking weed, drinking alcohol on the weekends. And to me, that was like the thing to do because that's just what everybody was doing. I didn't see no harm in it. I knew it was wrong, but I didn't know where it was going to end up taking me. I never really looked at the fact that my friends can stop. I can't. My friends can go home. I don't. Not because my mom and dad didn't want me home, but because I couldn't stop the go, the hustle, the bustle, uh, the, the the lifestyle. When I went into that middle, when I went into that high school, I, my parents would always ask me about, you know, you know, told me I had a drug problem, and I said no, no, no. And in my mind, I always said, you know, um, I've got everything under control. I'll never stick. Uh, I, I'll never be a crackhead. And you know, getting high for me was fun until 1989 BC. That's before crack. That's when getting high become a full-time job for me. You know, then I went to, in my mind, I said, well, you know what? It's, it's bad news, tough break. I'm a crackhead now. I'll never stick a needle in my body. And 1990, uh, I met the love of my life, and her name was Heroin. I was a junior in high school. Back then, um, I was full of shame in... Uh, embarrassment and guilt. I didn't want nobody to know what I was doing because in all reality, I was the only kid doing that in that high school. And it's a huge high school. In today's world, but there's so many kids sticking needles in their arms in today's world in high schools worldwide. It isn't limited to Grand Blank, Michigan. It isn't limited to Owensboro, Kentucky. We live in a world where people are saying that we have got an opiate epidemic. And um, it's wrong. We have a drug epidemic. And it's worldwide, and it affects everybody, from upscale to low poverty. People think it's a choice. Like when I was growing up, you know, when we talked about what you want to be when you grow up, and we say um, doctors and lawyers and uh, firefighters, we say so many cool things. I never raised my hand when I was growing up and said that when I grow up, I want to be a crackhead. I never raised my hand and said that when I grew up, I want to be a heroin addict or a junkie or, or a convict or a drop-dead drunk. I never said I wanted to be any of that. And I became every single one of them. You know, I detoxed in 1991 off of heroin for my first time um, in the Genesee County Detention Center. That is where I went and I did my first year of incarceration. And while I was in there, God was placing people in my life and I didn't believe in God. I didn't want to hear about God. And I surely didn't see these people that he was placing in my life. But they would come up to me and they would say, hey, there's a meeting today. You know, it's a 12-step meeting. You should go to it. And I would look at them and I would say, I have 12 steps. I have 12 steps out on Saginaw Street as soon as they let me out of here on my out date. And I did my year there. And I, I, I you know, the, the thought of using it wasn't in my mind after a while. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't have a problem. I'm not getting high. Well, it's because crack cocaine isn't on the commissary list. If it was on the commissary list, I would be getting high. It's that simple. I got out of that facility my first year. And Michigan's a lot different. In Michigan, when they give you a year, you do a year. 
Nobody comes to you six months later and asks you if, you know, hey, hey, we can get you some help. Hey, we can get you in a treatment. You do a year in Michigan, you're doing a year. You get sentenced for five, you're going to do five. That's just simply the way that it is. And I got out of that the, my first time being incarcerated, and I, 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 the payphone was to the left and the liquor store was to the right. The thought of using wasn't even on my mind. I walked right down to the right. I bought a pint. I drank it on my way to the dope man's house. And three or four days later, he told me that my presence wasn't wanted or needed at his house. He don't even have power running to his house. Flint's not a good area, okay? I'm, I'm not, I'm, it's not like I'm, I'm up in Beverly Hills. And I did a geographical change for many years. I tried Florida. I tried Ohio. I tried Tennessee. I found out that my worst problem was me. Um, the only common denominator was me. I, I, they did the same thing. I quit getting high when the police tell me I can't get high no more. Um, I came back to Flint, Michigan, or back to Grand Blanc, because in all reality, my biggest enablers were my parents. Um, if money could have cured me, my dad's money would have cured me. Uh, he retired President of Customer Satisfaction for General Motors, and they were very generous to my dad, and my dad was very generous to us kids. Um, if love could have cured me, my mom's love alone would have cured me. But my parents, they almost loved me to death. I came back to, to Michigan, do what you've always done, get what you've always gotten, and if nothing changes, then nothing changes. And the only thing that ever changed when I was making this geographical you know, change was the names and the faces that I could lie, kind of manipulate to get what I wanted to get because I just simply could not stop. I finally end up thinking to myself, it's not Michigan, it's Flint. I leave Flint and I move to Detroit. <laughs> So, wait, that's why you call it dope. <laughs> I moved to a much larger Flint is, is what I ended up moving to. And all of my best thinking while I was in Detroit, at the end, I was living in a tent uh, in the alleys off of Warren Avenue. I was eating out of dumpsters. I was doing everything that I said that I would never do. And I had became everything that I said that I would never become. The police down there did the same thing. They told me when I couldn't get high no more, they incarcerated me. I, I, after I lasted down in Detroit about eight years, I met, I met a girl. I belittled her and destroyed her and broke her. Today, she's my wife. She's my best friend. Her name is Coco. We've got four amazing kids. She lived in the tent with me. We got out of the tent. We got into a house, and I, I'll, I'll wrap this up, but I end up I end up finally, one day, I come home from work, and I, I had a big, huge U-Haul truck. And she said, what are we doing? And I said, I can't stay here anymore. She said, where are we going to go? I said, we're going to go home. And I had a, a, a group of people on motorcycles that I know very well in Detroit come and help me move. Now, they had that house packed real quick. You don't want to ask them to pack your breakables because they really, they really didn't care. But they had everything put in the back of that truck. And the, a guy looked down at me and gave me a big hug. And it's the last time I was ever called kid. And he gave me a big hug and he said, kid, go get right. And I went home. I went to my mom and my dad's house. They had no idea we were going to show up. I showed up with two kids because now we had brought two children into this world. And... We stayed at my mom and dad's house for five weeks. Um, I would like to lie to you and tell you that I, you know, I didn't use. Um, 
I couldn't go five days without using, so you know I didn't go five weeks without using. I managed to hold it together as best as I could. I got a house downtown Grand Blanc, and then in a matter of days, I went right down Saginaw Street north. It's not far. Back where it all started, in Flint. How old were you during during this time? I got clean when I was 32 years old, so I, I was 32 during this time. Okay. Um, when I moved back, and I, I found out, and I went right back down to Flint. And I didn't last that long, um, you know, in that house because I, I always say, you know, people always say you have to hit rock bottom, and they say... Um, you know, and a lot of people are like, Billy, you know, what was your rock bottom? And, you know, they think it's like this horrific thing that happens to you. And may- maybe sometimes it is. I've been shot. I've been stabbed. I've been beat down. I've been in places. I'm a four-time convicted felon. I mean, I have been in some places where people do not need to go. And you would think that that would be your rock bottom. But my rock bottom was the last eight years out of the 20 years that I used. Because uh, the ending was always the same. I was alone. Nobody wanted me around. I was broke. And I was full of shame and anger and resentments and bitterness. Um, and I just didn't want to live. I didn't even want to get high. But I couldn't not get high. So I was in my basement. I, I'm not going to say I, I, I hit my rock bottom. I believe your rock bottom is when you quit digging is when you put the shovel down and you say, I'm done digging. And I was in that house in Grand Blanc, and I was in the basement for about four days. I had a pistol crammed in my pants. I'm sweating like a cat in a room full of rocking chairs. I'm waiting for the police to kick in the basement door. The police don't even know that I'm down there. The only people who even know that I'm down there is my wife and my son, Kane Michael. And at that point, Kane was three years old. And my wife is upstairs. This is November 10th, 2004. 5,513 days ago. And my wife's upstairs and she's wondering, what did she do to deserve such a loser piece of crap for a husband? And my son, Kane, is at the top of them stairs and he's wondering, what did he do so bad that his own dad don't even love him? that his own dad don't even want to spend no time with him. When I finally muster up the courage to walk up them stairs, when I quit carpet farming and peeking out windows, crackheads know what I'm talking about when I say carpet farming. Tell me me what that means. Carpet farming is when you're, you're smoking dope for gosh knows how long in an area, and when the dope's all gone, you literally get down on your hands and knees and comb the mm. carpet. You will smoke anything that's white. I have I have smoked toenails. I have smoked roly-polies. I don't know if you guys call them roly-polies here in Kentucky, but those little bugs that when you poke them, they roll into a ball. Yes. yes. Okay, well, you know, when they when they die or whatever, you know, I've smoked shells of them, uh rock salt, uh, uh peanuts, uh carpet freshener, anything that you find down there that your mind is telling you that that's another hit, you know? 
I'm so sick, I tried to smoke the roly-poly twice. I, I didn't know it was a roly-poly the first time, but I knew it was a roly-poly the second time. I still put it in the pipe and tried to smoke it. So that's carpet farming mm-hmm. when you're down there. And it, it costs too much money to drop it on the floor. You're not going to drop it on the floor. It's your God. That's what you're, that's what you're worshiping. You're not just going to throw it on the floor. But your mind tells you, I'll bet you you drop something. I'll bet you there is something down there. And you'll spend hours down there. You'll take flashlights. It's sick. It's it's sick what it does to us in in and it puts us in that in that form of active addiction. So when I walk up them stairs, my son is sitting there, Kane, and I would give him anything. But I wouldn't give him anything so that I I was number one dad. And I wouldn't give him anything to, sh- to show him how much I loved him. I would give him anything so that he would leave me alone. Um, so that he would, he would quit uh, ruining my fun. And that's what, that's what our minds tell us. Um, and, and people, you know, today we live in a world where we look at the newspaper, we, we, we watch the news, and, and we see stuff about, you know... Um, Addicted people in parking lots uh, with rigs hanging out of their arms and children in the back seats. And, you know, some of them are knotted out. Some of them OD. Some of them have to be brought back in with Narcan. And the first thing that people do is say that they're unfit to be parents. Um, They're not. They should not have them kids. Um, This and that, you know, they have no idea the struggles that we go through. We don't wake up in the morning and say, my goal for today is I'm going to go out there and see exactly how bad I can hurt my family. We hurt the people who care us the most, the worst. We don't even realize we're even doing it until we begin a process of recovery. So when, when I came up them stairs on November 10th, 2004, I had been up getting high for about four days so i'm not gonna lie to you and tell you i slept i didn't but that night when i was laying in my bedroom for the first time i thought to myself you're a mess billy and you got to do something different the next day was november 11th 2004 and that was 5514 days ago i called the only treatment center i've ever gone to my entire life People think you have to go to these long-term treatment facilities. I didn't, and I've been clean ever since November 11, 2004. I called Sacred Heart in Memphis, Michigan. I said, I need help. They told me something like 21 days. or, And I said, listen, I don't have 21 days. I'm probably going to end up killing people or myself. They said, can you call us back? I called them back, and, and, and when I called them back, um, they said, can you be here sometime today? Whenever I uh, talk to people around here who are within treatment, I mean, 21 days, I mean, that seems impossible. You know, you talk about being yourself addicted for 20 years and actively addictive and then and then do it all in 21. Uh, it seems like a lot of these places are at least six months. And, and I get that, but I know this. Just because I went into a 28-day program, seven days of detox and 21 days of residential, I still live a day at a time program mm-hmm. today. So in reality, you know, 
They gave me the tools that I needed to walk out of that building and start becoming the person that I was intended to be all along and to figure out who I wanted God to be. And it's a God-given program. He gave me. He, he laid this down. He put it on people's hearts 84 years ago. And it's a 12-step program. I don't care what anybody says. It doesn't cost you nothing. But now we live in a world where we see how sick it is. We see, we see how big of a problem it is. And, and, and what we've did is we have, take, we have taken a worldwide problem and we have made it become a multi-billion dollar industry. It's all about money. And I hate to say that, but look, I don't care. I'm not here to be liked. I'm not here to be popular. I'm here to make a difference, and I'm here to help those people and help them families. And it has turned into a multi-billion dollar industry. They think that all of a sudden it's a, you know, there is no chemical solution for a spiritual problem. You don't have to take drugs to get off of drugs. You know, nowadays it's so sick that we bring our kids or we bring our loved ones into treatment, and what ends up happening is they get introduced to a doctor, and then when they leave there, they're on drugs for years after they leave treatment. So, so initially all we really did is we just changed their drug dealer from Pookie standing on the corner to a doctor sitting behind a, a, a desk. And not only did we just change the drug dealer, but now Kentucky's buying their dope because it's Medicaid. So their insurance is paying for it. And it isn't just Kentucky. It's Michigan. It, it, it's, it's worldwide. It's all over the place. I understand medically assisted detoxing. I get it. I'm not a supporter on medically assisted treatment because all your, if you're clouded and you're, getting, you're still clouded by drugs, you are never going to be able to experience a spiritual awakening. You won't. All you're doing is building a wall between you and God. And I've heard statistics, too, that most addicts have to go through a treatment program multiple times before they ever, you know, stop using. I mean, and so you seem kind of the exception to the rule. You went into the treatment program and you're still sober. So to me, it's phenomenal that you've been able to kick the habit for so long and and remained uh, sober as long as you have. Relapse isn't a requirement. That's another thing that that, that, that we all of a sudden, it's almost like we promote relapse. Um, I don't believe that um, I'm unique. I don't believe that I'm different. Um, I believe that any addict or any alcoholic who is either clean or sober is a miracle, period. Um, and now you have, but you've also em- em- embraced uh, Christianity as part of, of, of your source of, of treatment? I have. Um, my best friend and my mentor and my partner, his name is Pastor Mark Daly. Um, I met him when I got out of treatment, and God knew who it, who it was going to take to explain to me and teach me the difference between religion and a relationship. And then I and, and I got into the twelve steps, and I found out that they all come from the Bible. They come from a group. They come from the Oxford group, which is a Christian based group. And then all the steps come from the Bible. Well, Mark took me underneath his wing. We went around this country kicking in doors at dope houses and uh, um, uh, hotels in Detroit. Um, but the difference is, is we go in there and we're, we're, we're helping the addicts who are there who are stuck. And then we offer them, you know, an out. We offer them um, a, a way to get into treatment. And that's what I do with the, with all of my 
I, man, I don't like to use the word spare spare time. Um, but, you know, the cuffed monkey is not just a safe place to go and hang out as an addict or an alcoholic in recovery. It is also a place to go to find the many resources and availability in the, the, the network that I have. In the past, we're not open Monday or Tuesday, but in the past two days, I found myself being up there. Um, with people who had called me and reached out to me. And in those two days, we got four people um, into treatment. Um, and the fifth, I'm going to see in Indiana, uh, Evansville, um, sometime today. You opened up the, the Cuff Monkey when? I opened up that building originally um, October of 2017, um, shortly after we moved here to Kentucky. And the reason of moving here um, had changed. Um, originally it was a job and then, you know, things didn't work out. Um, my wife said, we're moving back to Michigan. And I said, no, we didn't come here for that job. We came here to, to help a broken community. We came here to bring awareness. You know, we, we seem to as a community, and I'm not talking bad about Owensboro. I love Kentucky. I mean, I've hunted Kentucky five years before I even moved here, but it seems like a lot of our communities, we put on horse blinds. We don't want to see the reality of what's going on. Yes, we will admit that we have got a meth epidemic, man, in western Kentucky. But we don't want to tell the neighbors what's going on at our house because of shame, embarrassment, and, 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 and guilt. But the bottom line is, is the same thing is happening at the neighbor's house. And if we don't do something different, it is not going to get any better. I have seen the change in Owensboro in the past two years. And I have seen the change in the 10 years that I've been coming back and forth before we even moved here. And when you talk about the change, we uh, ran a story in the last week or so about uh, this was a record year for indictments uh, for Davis County. And a lot of them had to do with drug-related, whether it be trafficking, possession, and then and if there's a theft, it usually had to do with because somebody was trying to thieve to get the money or the materials to be able to go out and get money to buy their drugs. So it's 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 definitely if you just look at our court records, you know it's not getting any better. No, but I, now on the flip side of that, okay, you, people look at that and they and some people have um, your outlook on it. Let's say, okay, but my outlook on it, being an outsider, because I'm an outsider, I come from Michigan. I look at that and I say, uh, that's good, okay, because every time I was arrested, um, and it took me a long time to admit this, every time I was arrested, um, I was guilty. That didn't take me long. I mean, they, I was guilty every time. They've, I've never been thrown into jail innocent. It took me a long time to actually believe and think that every time I was arrested, it was God. It was God protecting me from myself. And it was God protecting society from the person that I had become in hopes that I would get it right, in hopes that I would build a relationship with God, in hopes that I would take, you know, pick and choose a path of recovery. So, so we can look at that and say, okay, you know, it, record all-time high, man, our, our incarcerations. And yes, it, nine out of ten times, it is all drug-related. Um, however, we can look at that as in look at how bad it's getting, or we can look at it and say, Look at how many people that God has intervened through the law to given an opportunity to become the people that they were intended to be all along. Because, and I deal with addicts of all walks, of all kinds, 
all day long. When I came here to Kentucky, I never even knew what a commonwealth law was, a state law. I'd never even heard of it before. I mean, I lived in a tent. I'm not this knowledgeable individual. But when they start explaining it to me, I'm like, oh, my Lord, man. But then I started seeing what they're doing and what they offer the people who do get incarcerated. Drugs, all drug and, and, and alcohol related. And it's a blessing. It's a blessing that we live in a state that instead of just throw them away for 5, 10, 8, 15 years, we give them an option. We give them an opportunity to go to a long-term facility. Yeah, finally, you know, folks started saying, "Hey, this isn't this isn't a you know a crime problem. This is a you know a health problem here. Whenever you start seeing addiction, you know, it's a health problem. I mean, people. There's no doubt that you know some you have somebody who could, you know, whether it be alcohol or any kind of illicit drug." There are some people who could probably uh, take an illicit drug and never do it again. Right. Or, or drink one beer and never pick it up again. Or don't have to have, you know, 20 beers if they drink one. Uh, I was the type of person who could drink one beer and, and be fine. But, uh, but I, I, I hung around guys who, if they had one, you know, they weren't stopping until they were passed out on the floor. Yeah. You know, and so... It, it, so there's there's that addictive personality that's there that that gene or wherever it comes from, and so that that definitely plays a part into what we're talking about. And so it's not, and I don't consider I never uh, a lot of these people who who are addicted to drugs, most of them are good people who just fell into that trap. You know, I wrote a post this morning. That's that's funny that you said that because I wrote a post this morning and I said, um, we're not bad people trying to get good. We're sick people trying to get well. You know, addicts and alcoholics are definitely some of the most intelligent, resourceful people that God has placed on this planet. And they have got some of the biggest hearts. People in today's world, you know, there, there's a big debate. It's a disease. It isn't a disease. Um, I have it. Um, I'm the pastor that honestly says that um, I'm not cured. Um, I'm not downing the power of God. But I also know this. If I think I'm cured... I'm going to go out there, man, and think that I could try some controlled drinking. Maybe just smoke a little bit of crack. And uh, it doesn't happen. I have a disease that's progressive, incurable, and fatal. And the only thing that I'm guaranteed is I'm guaranteed a daily reprieve of active addiction through application of a 12-step program and a relationship with God. These people that are out there, they're not bad people. They're doing what they're doing, man, because they, the, the disease keeps telling them just one more. And the name of your sober bar kind of reflects that that idea of getting that you call it the cuff monkey, the idea of getting the monkey off your back yep. of addiction, right? Yes, because we have to arrest that monkey and we have to arrest him daily and we do need to get that monkey off our back. You know, it's a constant struggle. It isn't the drugs and alcohol. The inability to control the use of drugs is a symptom of the disease of addiction. I have got a disease that has got many symptoms, okay? I put the, the, the drugs and the alcohol down on November 11th, 2004. Since then, I have found other things that I have been obsessive and compulsive over hunting, fishing, chrome, women, money, um, spending money. I mean, 
my, my disease can manifest itself inside of me in so many different areas that's still totally unhealthy for me and my family, physically, mentally, and spiritually. So I guess let's talk about real quick, you know, the sober bar and and what you offer there and and its purpose, and when you do uh, have your meetings there. That if someone who's battling addiction or I guess are going through recovery and can come there and and hang out and just talk about its purpose and, and what you offer. Well, the Cuffed Monkey Sober Bar is the first sober bar in the state of Kentucky, and we should all be excited that we have it right here in Owensboro, Kentucky. Um, I started this uh, years ago, and I have been, I've been funding it myself. Um, I have got over $26,000 into keeping that building open for the past couple of years. Um, the good news is, is we finally got our 501c3, which makes us a nonprofit tax organization. Um, the bad news is, is I got fired. <laughs> I got fired, um, May. I got, I think it was, I think it was May of, May 21st. So, but the good news to that part is this though. That's only the second time I've ever been fired in my life. So I'm 47 years young. I've been in active addiction for 20 years, and I've only been fired twice. That's not bad. I deal with people get fired twice a week. So I need help. I want the community to understand what this building is. This building is a place, and it is a safe place. I don't care who you are. When you get clean, no matter what path you choose in recovery, we all have the same dilemma. What are we going to do? Where can we go? What are we going to do to have fun? Okay, we're not a glum lot. We do have fun. We can and we do recover, and we can have fun in it. So this building is open up Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 5 in the afternoon until 10 o'clock at night. After the first of the year, we're going to be opened up Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And it is a safe place where people of all walks of recovery can come into. I don't even care if people come in there um, high as gas. I've had people of all forms in all conditions come in that building and we love them and we greet them and we accept them right where they're at we don't cash judgment we don't try pushing nothing on them because the therapeutic value of one addict helping another is out with, with is without parallel nobody there is no better weapon out there for somebody who is looking for recovery than somebody who is out there and has it. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a big difference between clean time and recovery. It is very possible to have all kinds of clean time and no recovery, but it's impossible to have recovery with no clean time. you got to start somewhere, and that's that clean time. So we have a meeting on Thursday night. It's a faith-based meeting. It starts at 7 o'clock. It goes from 7 to 9 what we do is we bring in the Word of God and we incorporate Scripture with the 12 steps. Um, after that message is delivered, we take a break, and after that break, we separate the men and the women. The women are in the front of the bar. The men, they're in the back room of the bar. And we have our, you know, closed meetings. And a lot of therapeutic value is happening at those meetings. I separate them because, listen, I, I, we're sick people trying to get well. Um, I don't need any distractions, and I'm not going to share as honestly with my struggles um, that I would if there was women sitting next to me. Um, I, I, I feel comfortable of going and, and sharing what I'm going through with another man, um, and I can get honest, and that's the importance of it. 
Um, Friday night, we have a 12-step meeting that starts at 7 o'clock and ends at 8.30. And we are getting ready to start a meeting on Wednesdays. It is going to start January 1st. Um, Wednesday, it's going to be called the Hilltop Meeting, and that one is going to start at uh, 6.30 to 7.30. So those are the meetings that we currently do have. Um, the, the, the building is open and available for anybody in any fellowship who wants to use that building um, for a meeting. We are limited to how many meetings we can do personally because of, because of our numbers. Um, we have families. We have stuff we need to do. Outside of that, it's opened up every holiday, um, New Year's Eve, Christmas, uh, Easter. Um, the building is always open. There's always a meal. There's always a good dinner prepared because holidays can be a difficult time. Maybe your family doesn't want you there yet because you got some proving to do like I did. Um, maybe the family's not healthy for you to even go around. Maybe, maybe it's not good for you to go there. So why not come up and be at the Cuffed Monkeys? Celebrate your New Year's Eve, celebrate your Christmas, your Thanksgiving. Um, and the building is open for anybody who wants to come in there and say, look, I need help. This is what's going on. A family member who doesn't know the difference on how to help that person, they can come up and say, hey, you know, can you help me? You can call me at 810-877-9958. I'm not changing my number. For a crackhead to say he's had the same number for 15 years, that shows you how good God is and that recovery is possible because that's, that's, that we can't say that when we're out there in active addiction. So the, the building, man, and the opportunity is, is endless of what it does to help people. We feed the community once a month. Uh, this month on the 29th, we're going to be down to Pembroke um, housing and we, we, we cook up a bunch of food, we take it down there, we feed a few hundred people. That, that is us giving back to a community that we took from. We know what it's like to have no money on our cards. We know what it's like to have hungry kids. We want to give back. So this building actually is a lot more than what people know, but I can no longer continue to fund it myself. I just can't. I have four kids and I have a wife and we have given everything to this building and to this cause over these years. Even when I was in Michigan, my wife and my kids have given more to this ministry and this mission than anybody could ever give. Not just my time away from me, but all, literally all, everything that we have, we put into it. Because we see the people that have become successful because the doors were open. Because people care. Because some people just need to know that, hey... I've been there. I know how it feels. Let's talk. Yeah. People do people do care about you. You're not a throwaway. You're not a menace to society. You're an important person. You just are down right now. Let us show you how to pick yourself up. Let us love you until you figure out how to love yourself. Let me talk to you about how good God really is. And that's what the whole building stands for. And that will wrap up our show for this week. I want to thank Billy Pfeiffer for joining me. To send us questions or to provide feedback, email us at newscast at messenger-inquire.com. Remember, you can find us on the Messenger Inquire's website, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can subscribe to Inquire. Until next time, I'm Don Wilkinson. Good day for Inquire. <laughs>